Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. Our thanks to Adam Rodan for that musical introduction. Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. With me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We continue looking at a book written by a man by the name of Charles Abbott. He is an attorney. I'm assuming he's probably retired by now, Eric, would he, you say? I mean, well, he's he was, in his 70s when he wrote this book. Right, and uh, so he's 76 in 2014. I'm sure he's been long retired. Well, the book title is Immersion in Mormonism, especially for new members and also teens and members who struggle. And again, you might be asking, well, why are we looking at a book that isn't written by anyone in the Mormon church who has really any authority to speak on behalf of other people? And I I think it's good to look at some of the books that have been written by lay members in the church, because if nothing else, it gives us an idea of how they view their own faith. We certainly don't want to use straw man arguments when we speak with Latter-day Saints, although I do think there are occasions of when Mr. Abbott does that in his book regarding what he thinks we believe, but we don't want to do that. We want to be as upfront and understanding Mormonism to the best of our ability, and so I think it's good sometimes to see what lay people are saying and listening to the stories of how they converted to Mormonism So far, in looking at just a few pages within this book, I would say that I see some flaws in Mr. Abbott's research that perhaps led him to some of the wrong conclusions that made him embrace Mormonism in the first place. I've written a review that's on our website, mrm.org. If you go there and put slash Abbott review with a hyphen between Abbott review, and Abbott is spelled A-B-B-O-T-T, and you can see more than what we're talking about here on these shows. Well, so far we've looked at some, I think, important doctrines of the Christian faith that have obviously Mr. Abbott, being a Mormon, does not agree with. He's talked about the Trinity, and he's talked about the great apostasy and such. But then on page 16, he says that in his studies, he started to learn that there are numerous scriptures testifying of persons who saw God face-to-face, and face-to-face is in quotation marks, and or parts of his physical body. Then he gives a number of verses from the Bible, which we would consider to be merely theophanies or a Christophany, but he assumes, as most Mormons do, that this proves that God has a body of flesh and bones. Now, some of the verses I don't think support his position. For instance, he has Revelation 19, 12 and 15, and then he cites again Revelation 19, 11 and 13. But those passages in the book of Revelation aren't speaking about God the Father at all. So I don't know how that would justify the Mormon position if they're trying to say that this proves that Joseph Smith could have seen God face to face in what's known as the first vision. 
But one thing that I found interesting in here among his many proof texts is he leaves one particular passage out that I think might put all of this into perspective. And it's a verse that I don't see a lot of Mormons citing either, at least not from the Joseph Smith translation. And that's found in Exodus 33, beginning with verse 20. It says, And he said unto Moses, Thou canst not see my face at this time, lest mine anger is kindled against thee also, and I destroy thee and thy people, for there shall no man among them see me at this time, and live, for they are exceeding sinful. And no sinful man hath at any time, neither shall there be any sinful man at any time that shall see my face and live. So here we find in the Joseph Smith translation in Exodus 33 that no sinful man at any time shall see the face of God and live. Well, that's pretty telling when you consider that Joseph Smith admits in his testimony that he was a young man prone to doing sinful, stupid things. So if what we are reading in the Joseph Smith translation is to be believed, and by the way, it doesn't read in quite the same detail in our versions of our Bibles, but it does basically say that you can't see God's face and live. The Joseph Smith translation seems to go a few steps further to make sure you understand that nobody is ever going to see the face of God and live. So the question then becomes, well, why did Joseph Smith claim that? Well, because I believe that when he is doing the Joseph Smith translation, and we know that he worked on this inspired version, as it's also called, between 1830 and 1833, Joseph Smith wasn't telling anybody that he saw God's face. The idea of the first vision doesn't come around until later on in early Mormon history, and we don't know of anybody who was talking about the first vision as it's understood today by most Latter-day Saints, and I would even assume as understood by Mr. Abbott. I'm sure he believes firmly that Joseph Smith saw the face of God. Otherwise, I don't think he would have included this paragraph on page 16 to try and support that position. But the fact is, according to Joseph Smith in 1830-33, to 33, we don't know exactly what date he wrote this particular portion, but at least during that three-year period going up to 1833, it doesn't seem that Joseph Smith is teaching that he saw God. Otherwise, why would he say what he says in verse 20 of Exodus chapter 33. And especially since he added to it, and the manuscript evidence does not support what he has added in. I think a lot of these things certainly start to raise a lot of questions for me. And here again, we have a case of a Latter-day Saint who's reading about Mormonism, and I'm going to have to step out on a limb here and say, I'll bet you a lot of what he's reading about Mormonism was from pro-Mormon sources. We mentioned yesterday about his being enamored with Legrand Richard's book, A Marvelous Work in a Wonder. He may have gotten a lot of his understanding of Mormonism from that book. And you would think, well, wouldn't a Mormon apostle know what Mormonism is all about and have the wherewithal to be able to defend the Mormon position in that book? You would think so. But as I've already mentioned, there's a lot of points that Legrand Richards uses in that book that I don't think a lot of 21st century Mormons would use today, at least not the scholars. 
And I think a lot of Mormon apologists have shied away from using some of the arguments that LeGrand Richards uses in that book as well. But he goes on to talk about his further study. He gives this interesting story on page 17, where he says, While I was engaged in this study of the churches, I happened to visit a sick friend who was recovering in a Catholic hospital. He goes on and says, While I was waiting to be admitted to his room, I spotted a Catholic Bible sitting on an end table next to my chair. I had learned about the unique Mormon practice of baptism for the dead, and so I turned to 1 Corinthians 15.29, where Paul is teaching the people about the resurrection and says, quote, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? End quote. There was a footnote in that Bible, and it said that this apparently refers to an early practice in the church, which was discontinued in 325 A.D., To me, this gave added credibility to claims that a restoration was needed. Now, he doesn't cite which Bible exactly he was looking at. The Catholic Church has put out a number of Bibles. I happen to have a Douay-Rheims version Catholic Bible. And looking up 1 Corinthians 15 in this Bible, it does have a footnote for verse 29. But this is what it says in the footnote for verse 29 that are baptized for the dead, referring to the verse. Some think the apostle here alludes to a ceremony then in use, but others more probably to the prayers and penitential labors performed by the primitive Christians for the souls of the faithful departed. Coming from a Catholic source, I can understand where they might draw that conclusion. But then it gives a third option, or to the baptism of afflictions and sufferings undergone for sinners spiritually dead. Now, there's three options that are given in this Catholic Bible. And why would you think that there would be three options? Probably because we don't know what Paul was really referring to. Many scholars will admit it's a vague passage. There's a number of ways that you could look at that verse. This is where I question his memory, Eric. I'm assuming this is what he thinks he read. That footnote in that Catholic Bible said that this apparently refers to an early practice in the church which was discontinued in 325 A.D. I wish he would provide the reference, but why would they say 325 A.D.? Council of Nicaea is the only reason I can think of, and, uh, and I've never heard that ever before in my life. If that Catholic Bible, as he is implying, was trying to tie it into the Council of Nicaea. That would certainly make no historical sense because baptism for the dead was not an issue at the Council of Nicaea. Right. So why 325? And why would we expect to believe that if the church was really doing this as an official practice, why would all of a sudden it end in 325? Who would have the kind of authority to make sure that every professing Christian who was doing that, if they were, would all of a sudden stop doing it? And you're making a good point there, especially since Arianism, which was the belief that Jesus was a created being, even though it was denied at the Council of Nicaea as being orthodox, continued on for decades after. They couldn't even get rid of a major heresy. How are they going to be able to get rid of something like baptisms for the dead? Now, I'm sure he's probably using his memory on this. And we have to understand, when he writes this book, he's 76 years old. When he visited that Catholic hospital, I'm not even sure. I'm getting the impression that he's reading this very early on in his studies. That's the way he gives the story. So we could have as many as 50 years ago. This is when this this experience happened to Mr. Abbott. He might have thought he read 325 A.D., but I 
I really question that. I, I don't know if it actually said that. And if it did, I and I'm wrong, I will apologize, that's for sure. But it just seems odd. I can't imagine any scholar saying that. And why would that be found in a footnote of a Bible? That just doesn't seem to uh, make sense to me. Now, on page 40 in his book, under chapter 3, he talks about the three main questions that we often hear Mormons bring up, and that is, where did we come from, why are we here, and where are we going? And, of course, to answer the first question, where did we come from, he's going to refer to this alleged time period when we existed as spirit children. He writes, where did we come from? There was a great war in heaven. It is referred to in Revelations 12, 7 through 17. However, until I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I never heard anything about it over a pulpit. Through the restoration, we now know that we came from a pre-existent state, and because we didn't rebel against our Father's plan, we have been given life with bodies and the opportunity to overcome hardships and temptations and make choices that will help us to become better people. You're not going to find any type of explanation that is believed by Mormons regarding Revelation 12, 7 through 17 that matches what he says in this paragraph. No. There's nothing in those verses that supports this. This is why he has to say that it has to come from modern-day revelation or through the restoration we know this. The Bible does not support it. I would say you're on dangerous ground when you start reading into the passages so many intricate details as the Mormons believe on these subjects. Well, tomorrow we're going to continue looking at this book, Immersion in Mormonism. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.